you. Thank you. If you'd like to turn to 2 Timothy in chapter 1. So helpful when Sam prays and says, you know, sometimes we need a challenge. Because that <coughs> feels like it gives you the freedom to do exactly that. So... Take it back. <laughs> <laughs> Too late now, you prayed it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read through to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I want to tell you, first of all, three stories. These are all true stories. These are all stories of heroes of the faith. The first one, and uh, I suspect that you'll know one of them definitely, One of them may be, one of them probably not. So the first one is Henry Martin. Henry Martin lived from 1781 to 1812. He believed that he was called to preach the gospel to Persia, uh, Iran as it now is. And he also went through India at the same time. He did some translation work as he travelled, but he suffered a great deal of ill health and uh, for the majority of his time. So he wasn't a well man. When he left England, he was betrothed, and he wrote to his beloved uh, fairly regularly, and he was deeply in love with her. And so he wrote his letters back as his mission progressed. So you can imagine how heartbroken he was to receive a letter from her saying that she had married somebody else. He's in the middle of nowhere, and suddenly he feels that he's been cut off. He, he was heartbroken, but in his letters you will find that he rejoiced for her in her happiness. 
In his time preaching the gospel, it is very difficult to estimate just how many people came to salvation through his preaching. But I'm going to choose a ballpark figure. One. Maybe. He died in the middle of nowhere, aged 31. He once said, let me burn out for God. That's Henry Martin. Secondly is Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth and her husband Jim and various other couples went on a mission to the Alka Indian tribe found in the forests of Ecuador. Nobody had reached them before. The tribe were known to be very fierce and they took quite some time over a gradual period making contact with them. They took various trinkets and useful items so forth to give them as gifts to make relationship. The men used to go out and take all these trinkets out, meet with the tribe and then come back. But one day they did not come back. They had been killed. Elizabeth Elliot and one or two of the other wives returned to the same tribe some years later to continue the work. Elizabeth was even taken captive and held for one year. A good many of the Alka Indians from that tribe became Christians because of those people. A famous quote of Jim, Elliot, Jim Elliot's is, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he could not lose. And the story three is of a soldier called Dusty Miller. He was taken prisoner during the Second World War in Thailand. He was on the Burma Railway, the famous Burma Railway, which was a brutal place to be kept by brutal enemies. His job before the war was as a gardener, a fairly ordinary man, ordinary job. But three and a half years after being incarcerated by the Japanese, a turning point came where he and another POW, Ernest Gordon, uh, was, this Ernest Gordon was dying and thought he was, he was going to die. So Dusty Miller, together with another Christian, Dinty Moore, uh, Dusty and Dinty, lovely, a Catholic, they looked after Ernest Gordon, they prayed with him, they ministered to him, and utterly unexpectedly, this man Gordon lived. What it did for the rest of the POWs was brought great hope to them, that they could overcome the trials that they, they had. In fact, only Gordon, of the three that I've mentioned, survived the war. Two weeks before the world, uh, war, uh, war's end, Dusty Miller was crucified by the Japanese guard because of his Christian faith. Now there are three maybe inspiring stories, depending on, a, on your perspective, that I'm going to refer back to as I make three points. Now as you know, all good sermons have three points. My first point will be follow the pattern. We're going to talk about obedience. My second point will be the spirit God gives, gives which will be about faith. And my third point will be about the mission, which is the gospel. So follow the pattern. In verse 13, uh, uh, Paul says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me 
in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, obedience is not the sexiest subject, but it is essential to an understanding of walking by the Spirit. So there are four aspects of obedience that may be useful. Firstly, we learn obedience. You do not just become obedient, you learn it. Jesus learned obedience. You can find that in Hebrews 5 verse 8. And obedience usually comes through some form of suffering. We won't like what we have to face in order to become obedient. It's similar to discipline, which I'll come to. Now, when I was learning to drive, on my first lesson with my first driving instructor, which will give you a clue to what's coming, I got rebuked within 10 minutes for speeding. (laughs) I'd never driven a car before, uh, but I realised that there was something it could do for me, and that was go fast. And I got rebuked very quickly. As I went past Whitstable Harbour, I overtook a parked car with another car coming in the other direction because I thought I was going to be quicker. I was quicker, but I got told off for it. And he kept telling me off. So in the end, we parted company. I took up with another driving instructor, a woman this time. Now she was absolutely brilliant. She explained to me why I needed to control my speed She deliberately took me through places where the speed changed very quickly until I learnt. And then at the end of the lesson, she'd take me on the Thanet Way so I could get it out of my system. (laughs) Now, learning obedience is actually quite hard because you have to constrain what you naturally want to do. And because of this driving instructor, this lady, I passed my test first time with just one or two minor marks, which is pretty good. Obviously, there can be backsliding, but, uh, but the goal is to learn obedience so that we maintain a good walk. But it may help to understand that obedience is greater than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. So you could give up your life For the Christian faith. But if God hasn't said to you to do that, it is not greater than having an obedient walk. We may think it is, but actually it is not. It is you deciding that that is better. What is better is to be obedient to the Lord's will, whatever that might mean. To obey keeps us secure with God. Now if we just turn to the book of Numbers... And chapter 20. (coughs) 20 and verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. God had already spoken to him about how to behave. It was about listening to what God was saying. 
But they weren't listening. They were doing automatically what they'd done before. And we could do that. We can keep going through the automatic. We've always done it this way. This is how God worked in the past. This is how he'll work in the future. But that isn't how God will work in the future. God wants us to have our own walk of faith with him. But that means listening to the Spirit. What is he saying to us? So be prepared, if you want to walk by the Spirit, to learn obedience. And it won't always be easy. Secondly, there's discipline. There's no obedience without discipline. Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave. Now, the words, I beat my body, actually ought to be translated, I bruise my body. In other words, he was hitting his body to bruise himself in order to control himself, whatever that might mean. Now, the Roman Catholics have taken this to mean let's self-flagellate ourselves to subdue the body and the flesh. So they'll be putting, uh, certainly uh, older Catholics would have put spikes around their thigh. So as they walked along, it would have dug in, would have mortified the flesh and reminded them to control the flesh. I don't know whether that works. Uh, or whipping themselves and so forth. Do these things work? I don't know. But I'm not confident that's what the scriptures say. I don't think that's what this means. Your flesh, my flesh, in myriad ways will provoke us to pander to the self. Only discipline under the spirit will overcome it. But that might mean being fairly radical about it. So that we control our flesh. Why be disciplined? Because you want to be obedient to God. Because you want to glorify him. The motivation of our lives ought to be to glorify God. So in Corinthians it says, whatever you do, do it to glorify God. Whatever you do. Thirdly, so obedience, discipline... The war of the spirit and flesh. Obedience is the goal. The battle is the spirit versus the flesh. Which brings us back to Galatians 5, which Adam used last week. Now you may not necessarily feel it this way, but you have a war going on within you. We need to stop thinking that we're going to be okay if we pray and okay if we this, that and the other. We are at war within ourselves. The spirit opposes the flesh. The flesh opposes the spirit. You can't say that doesn't happen. The scriptures tell you it does happen. And I think you know that it does. Your mind will tell you certain things that may or may not be true. Your flesh will tell you you do want to eat a cake. Well, maybe two cakes. Well, let's say three. Call it four. Well, five. Where does it end? <laughs> I'm giving the wrong impression here. <laughs> but your, your flesh will keep pandering to you what you think you need or what you think might be good for you. Or shall I binge watch this series? You know, there's so many things that we can go on with. Comfort, shopping, and so forth. The spirit opposes the flesh. The flesh opposes the spirit. You need to ask yourself the question, do you want to be spiritual? We have to ask ourselves that. I ask myself that. Do I want to be spiritual? 
And sometimes I worry that the answer I have is not really. Because it means saying no to some things. It means being very disciplined about some things. We have to recognise that the war, the battles, the skirmishes, we're going to have to go through. We need to therefore see if we're at war, then being filled with the Spirit constantly makes sense. Why do you need to go on being filled with the Spirit? Because you're at war. You need to be supplied all the time. I think it's amazing that if you follow the story of Napoleon wanting to invade Russia, he had the army to achieve it, he had the power to achieve it, but he did not achieve it because the supply lines ultimately got broken down. And and the weather wasn't very helpful either, but nevertheless, that's part of the story. We need a supply line that gets us through the battle. The battle that you're in. How often does the battle between spirit and flesh go on? Daily. How much then do we need to be full of the spirit? And fourthly in this, relationship driven, not results driven. Obedience is to someone, not something. Obedience is love motivated, not an outward duty. We're motivated by our love for God. Henry Martin was obedient to God's call. He did not see hardly any success. He was constantly unwell. He lost his fiancée to another. He died away from everybody that he knew and loved. His life, looked at as a result, is sadly lacking encouragement. Yet, his life is a model of obedience to what God had said to him. Will God honour him in heaven? I think he will. His life is a model of obedience and a model of virtue to be imitated. So obedience is learned with discipline through the battle of the flesh versus the spirit, motivated by a relationship of love with God and not results. Secondly, faith, the spirit that God gives. So verse 7, we're told, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now I do not like to fly in planes. It's not the enigma of a few tons of metal defying gravity that bothers me. It is not the possibility of a mechanical or human error that affects me either. No, what affects me, what bothers me about flying is the space between the thing I'm in and the ground. 30,000 feet does not feel good to me. But I have made it a, a kind of word over my soul that I will never allow that fear to stop me getting on a plane ever. I don't like it. And when we're taking off, Ruth and Stacey, they love the taking off bit. (laughs) Honestly, what's that all about? That's like just making the gap bigger. (laughs) Whereas landing, what a joy. You see, fear is not faith. My life is in the hands of God, isn't it? 
If I don't get on a plane, I've decided actually I can take another route. Now, God will meet me wherever I am, I guess. But fear is not faith. And once you step outside and into fear, you're actually putting yourself, not in God's hands, but worse, your hands. It does not please God when it is not faith. Now, please keep in mind that when I say the word fear... I mean fear and derivatives of fear. Timidity and anxiety. I mean them as well. So three more things. You have not been given a spirit of fear, timidity and anxiety. You have not been given that. So I would encourage you to turn to the person next to you and say to them, you have not been given a spirit of fear. Now, if you're not convinced that the person next to you believes it, you might want to say it to them again. (laughs) Now, we need sometimes to speak truth to one another. This is why we need to do these kind of things. It can be a bit of fun, but please take this seriously. You have not been given a spirit of fear. So we need to keep telling ourselves these things. I've not been given that. I've been given something else. Now if you feel overwhelmed by fear or timidity or anxiety, it's because it's been generated by one of three things. The flesh, the world and the devil. Those are the three things that generate fear. Your flesh will tell you that you are, oh, this is not going to be good for you. The world will say, this is not good for you. And the devil will certainly say, this is not good for you. Submit to God and you deal with the flesh and the world. Resist the devil and he will flee from you and you deal with the third. Now I know to say them is easy, to live them out is more of a challenge. I know these things. But you must start from the foundation that you have not been given a spirit of fear, of timidity, or anxiety. You do not have that. If you're a believer in Christ, that does not belong to you. Why would you accept it? So you haven't been given that. What have you been given? You've been given a spirit of power. Now you need to start believing what the word actually says. Either this is God's word or it isn't. If it isn't, why are we here? If it is, then you've been given a spirit of power. Power to overcome. Power to live right. Power to do wonders. Now if you think, actually at the moment I'm struggling to overcome this, the spirit will help you because he's given you the power to overcome. And if you think I'm struggling to live in a way that's honouring to God, then you've been given a spirit of power to live right. And if you want to preach the gospel, you know you've been given the power to preach the gospel. It is the power of God. You have been given love. Love is a fruit of the spirit. 
If you've been given the Spirit, then you can love. And you know, you can love as much as you want to. Because there's no law against such a thing. You can love as much as you want to. Now love, if you love as much as you want to, overcomes all things. Love imitates God. Because God is love. But you've also been given a spirit of self-control. Now some of you are old enough to remember an advert that was about, uh, uh, I think it was uh, for Rhodes. It was about think once, think twice, think bike. Now, anybody who drives in a car daily and gets held up by cyclists thinks think once, think twice, run the cyclist over. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) we need to start to think once, think twice, think God. Think once, think twice, think spirit, however it helps you. But self-control is that, instead of just entering into it, is stepping back. Think once. What's the right thing here? Actually, what's the best thing? Actually, I want to walk by the Spirit. And bring self-control in. Because you've been given a spirit of self-control. You can do it. You can overcome it. Self-control and love your neighbour. Not to reject or avoid people. Self-control to overcome those things which are a bondage. Uh, Self-control not to say things then it would be better if you didn't. Self-control not to rant and rage at any injustice. But to know how best to speak into it. Failure is acceptable. Fear and timidity is not. You've not been given a spirit or fear, or timidity. By the world's way, Henry Martin is a failure. He's a failure. He achieved nothing. Lost everything. But gained eternity. Failure is acceptable. A fear and timidity are not, if we're doing the Lord's will. But fear, timidity, and anxiety are not faith. They are self-ish. They're you being concerned for you. If we trust that God is for us and not against us, as Romans says, then anything that happens to us is not a place for fear, timidity or anxiety, but for faith, trust and confidence that God our Father has our best in mind. If we trust God, that God is for us and not against us, then anything that happens to us is not a place for fear, timidity and anxiety, but for faith, trust and confidence that God our Father has our best in mind. If I say to you, does God have your best in mind? I'm pretty confident you'll say yes. Then there's no place for fear or timidity or anxiety then. Because God has your best. Secondly, in this point, we need to reject fatalism for knowing God's ways. You know, there is around and in the church, and I don't necessarily just mean FCC, but in and around the church, an all-embracing false doctrine. The promoters of this false doctrine 
the Doris Dayites, speak out a mantra. Whatever will be, will be God's will. If we pray for a dying person to recover and then they die, what I hear most often is people say, well, then they've been perfectly healed. Now, all false doctrine starts with an element of truth. The Christian who dies will, of course, be perfectly healed. But not everything that happens is God's will. So that may disturb you just for a moment. Not everything that happens is God's will. But simple reflection will just show that's true. Was it God's will that the Israelites made a golden calf? No. Was, uh, did God want to send his people into exile? No. He wanted them to be obedient to him. Does God want unbelievers to reject him and when they die to go to hell? No. Not all things are God's will. Which all goes to show that it is possible to pray, to act, to live outside of God's will. So what do we do when someone is sick, dying or suffering? And if we pray for a dying person to live and then they die, do we accept that we did not know God's will? If we pray for a dying person to live and then they die, do we accept that we did not know God's will, but rather we prayed for our emotional desire? We wanted them to live. Perhaps we weren't praying for them, but for ourselves. So I'm asking these questions. In 1977, 78, my dad was diagnosed with bone cancer. So I would have been 14, something like that. It was and is incurable. In 1980-81, I became a Christian because of it. Because it suddenly started making me think about what happens when you die. My dad started to search for what the truth was, what happens. And he met with the Church of England minister on a fairly regular basis. During 1982 particularly, with this Church of England minister, we prayed for my dad to be healed and to live. On the 17th of December 1982, he died. I'm saying to you, I know I prayed for my emotional desire. I did not pray within the will of God. Would my dad have searched for God if he had been healed? I can't tell you the answer to that, but I can tell you that he did seek God whilst he was dying. He came to see me baptised and it had a profound effect on him. You see, he was moved by it. He wasn't anti it. He was very moved by it. Now, who knows what came from that? So then, after a a longer walk with God, you might want to know what what happens when Ruth was in hospital and dying. So I'd just been told that she had two to three weeks to live. 
I did not pray for her to be healed. That might terrify some of you, but I did not pray for that. You will have, some of you at least, will have heard me say, I sat on Denmark Hill Station and I asked God what he was doing. When you ask God what he is doing, you will get an answer. But it may not be an answer that's very likeable. When I prayed for Ruth um, in that respect, God said to me, I want you to trust me. Do you know how hard that is? But why is God saying it? Because I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I don't belong to me. I belong to God. Did I want Ruth to live? Oh, yes. Desperately. I think Ruth's pretty convinced that if I'm on my own, I'm going to go mad. (laughs) We simply cannot keep praying for the sick, suffering and ill to live and for every difficult situation to go away. This will not happen. This is not prophecy. It's truth. It will not happen. We should, must rather take the time in relationship to seek, to ask, to find out God's will. I know how hard it is. Sometimes dying is the answer. We need to decide whether the scripture is true. Is it better to be with Christ? Is it better? Are you worried about dying? If you belong to Christ, then there's nothing to worry about. It is better. If we're praying for non-believers, that's a time to pray for them to be healed so that they might hear the gospel. But actually, even if they're dying, (coughs) it should motivate us to tell them the gospel. But we cannot live in fear of death, of struggle, of trial. We simply cannot. We ought to be a model under these things for the world outside. Jesus, under the greatest pressure of his short life, said, Father, if you can remove this, please do. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed with an active faith that he knew he was going to die unless God said otherwise. And God did not say otherwise. Do you wish Jesus had lived? Nice theological dilemma for you. You cannot wish for Jesus to have lived. Because if Jesus lives, we die. If he dies, we live. Let us not be afraid of death. Lord, if it is possible, let this person live and recover or stop suffering or have their struggles ended. But not my will, but yours be done. Please show me your will. Amen. We need to know the will of God. The three stories I told you at the beginning have three stories of death. All under serious pressure, all died well. 
our prayers will become prayers of faith if we know what God is saying rather than assuming that what we hope for must be the right thing and praying in futility. If God says, I'm going to raise this person up, how will you then pray? With faith. God has said. Otherwise we're praying wishful thinking. This is a hard thing to say. And I have no wish to offend anybody. But I feel very strongly that this is something that the church needs to learn. I could go on. But perhaps questions in small groups will help her, you to talk it through. And I encourage you to test what I've said. Look at the Bible. Look for the inner conviction of the Spirit and for the corporate sense of where we are together. A threefold cord will not easily be broken. Faith is trusting God. In verse 12, it tells us, why, uh, which is why I suffer as I earn and earn a sort of it. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and, te- uh, preacher and apostle and teacher to preach the gospel. Confidence in what you have believed. Our confidence is not in ourselves, or nor is it in the confidence that we have in the super-Christians, whoever they might be, or in governments, or philosophies, or science. All these things are changeable. Only one is unchangeable, and that is God himself. Our confidence is in God, whom we have believed. Our confidence is in Christ, in whom we have believed. They are unchangeable. So we do need to know what they're saying. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband and friends to a dangerous people, but she went back. Why did she go back? Because she had confidence in whom she had believed. Wasn't given a spirit of fear uh, fear and timidity, but one of power, love and self-control. I urge you to reject anything false for knowing God's ways through relationship, and in so doing, be confident in whom you have believed. And my third point on the gospel, and I probably rattled on far too long. The gospel has at least five things we can say, so I'm just going to run through those. The gospel is the promise of life. The promise of life. If you're not enjoying your Christian life, then we might have missed something somewhere, and that's a time to get others around us. The gospel is the promise of life. So let us not be ashamed of the gospel then. We can preach the gospel because it's good news, isn't it? Well, some of you it is. (laughs) Because the gospel is the promise of life. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because he saved and called who? You! You! How exciting is that? That ought to cause you to want to raise the roof. I've been saved forever from my sins. Our Saviour appeared, died and was resurrected. Therefore, we are appointed to preach, teach and reach. How simple can that be? Preach, teach and reach. However it seems good to you to do it. Dusty Miller lived out the gospel by example and care for others. What it brought in was death, but life eternal. Now, all that I've said today is pretty much dependent on what Adam said last week. 
Walk by, led by, fruit of, live by the Spirit. So if you want to know how to live out what I'm saying today, have a listen to Adam's sermon last week. It's walk by, led by, fruit of, live by the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we will not do these things. Therefore, whatever you do, do this above all things. Be filled with the Spirit. Adam said last week, it's the t- it was a turning point in Ephesians 5.18. It's a present imperative. It says it like this. Whatever you do, do this above all other things. Be filled with the Spirit. It's very forceful. That above all other things. Because if you do that, you will do all that the Lord has planned for you. Because you're full of the Spirit. Should we just pray? Just pray. Father God, I want to pray that the things I've said that are true will remain. Anything I've said that's unhelpful, Lord, will fall away. It's not my intent to upset or hurt or offend anyone. But I pray, Lord, we would search these things out in the Scriptures. I pray for us, Lord, to be a people of faith, of confidence, with no fear, no timidity, no anxiety, because our confidence is in you and in you alone. I pray you would meet with us powerfully today through the worship, through ministry, Lord. We love you. I want to pray this morning you would come and fill each one of us full of your spirit. As we hold out our hands to you, During the worship, I pray as we reach out to you, you would meet with us powerfully. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified amongst us. We desperately want to reach this community of ours. But we cannot do it in our strength alone. We can only do it by your spirit. So, Lord, may we this morning really be filled full of you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.